Yo, yo, yo. Hello, everyone. What's up, everybody? Live streaming. Actual I. Where we endeavor to change this world from the inside out. And we're happy that you all have joined us for this new episode of Actual I Podcast. Today we are diving into episode 12 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And it's going to be awesome. We're getting into part two of Higher States of Consciousness now. And uh, it's going to get really, really interesting. I'm excited. So, how did you enjoy last episode? Uh, I enjoyed <laughs> thoroughly. Um, uh, starting to get into the world that, you know, I guess in a way I'm a little bit more familiar with, like, directly. Mm. You know, uh, a somewhat experienced psychonaut, at least back in the day. Yeah, yeah, he actually gets into some interesting psilocybin studies in this episode and uh, breaks down exactly what is happening in the brain that is causing these higher states of consciousness to occur that are also akin to the higher states that we find through yoga and meditation and fasting and many other techniques that uh what did he call it that onto normativity that super real sense of of existence i'm just trying to make sure that i get this shared up and <laughs> to all the places yeah the realer than real and you know why do we accept these altered states of consciousness more than say like we do mm-hmm. a dream um you know because like a dream is you know, somewhere you go, something happens, it feels real in the moment, and then you wake up, you say, well, now feels realer than the dream, so discard the dream as real. But with higher states of consciousness, it's quite the opposite. And yes. then you can't really explain it either, that ineffability of the experience. And, no, uh, no, it is. It's indescribable, beyond words. Because it's yeah, knowledge. Realer with, than real. Like, or, it's like waking up from a dream. Yeah. It's like waking up from reality into the real reality. Remembering as in remembering, re-becoming yeah. a member of Yes, yes. That sense of like a deeper sense of home than you've ever known that's yeah. like ultra familiar. So yeah, we're going to be getting into that and uh, much, much more. And it looks like we are good here. So let's go ahead and get rolling, guys. Let me get my software working here. Do it, software. You can do it. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So we have been engaged in a very long discussion because we're talking about a topic that is central about uh, the possibility of uh, enlightenment and to try and make that something plausibly accessible to us uh, rather than something wrapped and shrouded in mesmeric mystique. Instead, we've been trying to understand this from a cognitive science perspective that could tell us why these higher states of consciousness might in fact provide a means for the radical self-transformation self-transcendence, enhanced inner peace and connectedness to reality that are the central legacy 
of the Axial Age Revolution and that are still needed today even if we no longer believe in the mythology of the Axial Age religions and philosophies. How do we find a place to vouchsafe the value, the precious value that these states can confer on lives in terms of meaning and transcendence when we no longer can understand and articulate and legitimate that in terms of a two-worlds mythology. So if you remember, we had been discussing the properties of these higher states of consciousness. We had discussed what it's, the world is like. It's a bright, both comprehensive and detailed, intricate and interesting, the world in a grain of sand. It's highly intelligible, it's beautiful, and behind it is a pervasive sense of oneness. The self that is resonating with that world in the higher state of consciousness is a self deeply at peace. Like in Plato's description of Anagage. It's experiencing joy. It's experiencing a kind of deep remembrance, sati, of the being mode, its true and authentic self. It is losing its egocentrism. We talked about the connectedness between the self and the world as one so intimate, so flowing, so anagogic, that the sense of participation and conformity is achieving a sense of identity, deep and profound, being at one with the oneness. But that it is so profound that it is almost always described as ineffable. We then took a look at what might be going on in these states, because we're trying to remember, we're trying to give a descriptively adequate and a prescriptively adequate account. We took a look at the continuity hypothesis, that they're the same machinery that's at work in our everyday experience of the fluency of reading into the moments of insight, into the insight cascades of flow, and then being exapted even more into mystical experience. And then some of those mystical experiences bring about a quantum change. Right? They bring about a deep transformative experience. And I suggested to you, I proposed to you, that what's going on in these higher states of consciousness is something like a, a state of flow, but that the skill, the expertise that is flowing is not this particular skill of rock climbing or being a martial artist or playing jazz. It's the skill, the domain general skill of getting an optimal grip on the world. And so what's happening is people are getting a flow state in their ability to optimally grip on the world. This connection to the machinery of insight helps to explain why disruptive strategies are used in order to try and bring about the higher states of consciousness because disruptive strategies are so central to trying to create insight. They're both naturally disruptive strategies and you can acquire them through mindfulness psychotechnologies. We were examining what these disruptive strategies do. They massively increase variation in your processing. And that reveals invariance. 
both good invariants, you get to see more of the real patterns that are remaining unchanged through all the variation. That's what science does. Across all of their variations, we try to find the real patterns that are invariant. And what science does is increase the variation. We run experience, experiments. We increase the variation. We do all kinds of manipulations and increased variations to try and find what remains invariant because we take that to po point to us, right? Point out to us what is more real. That's what you're doing. But it also, right? So it's opening up the invariance of the world. And you're using the flow state's capacity for enhanced implicit processing, implicit learning of complex patterns, tracking of causal patterns to do that. But it's also picking up on the bad invariants. It's picking up on, right, it's helping to reveal all the ways in which you are systematically misframing. So that like a child going through a developmental stage, and I would point to you to the work of my uh, former student and friend colleague Jensen Kim for this idea of development as a systematic form of insight, something that he and I are working on together. Like a, ch like a child going through a developmental stage, realizing not just this error or that error, but a systematicity in the way that they're misframing reality and finding a nexus, a point of where the insight right, is not just an intervention in this problem, but in a whole class and type of problems. That developmental change of seeing through illusion and into reality that is so central to wisdom is also being afforded by these higher states of consciousness. What about the decentering that's so central to both flow mystical experiences, and then ultimately to higher states of consciousness. My, my colleague, uh, Igor Grossman, has produced quite a bit of good experimental evidence that such decentering strategies, although this was prefigured in earlier work by the Berlin Paradigm, Igor Grossman has done some excellent work on showing that such decentering strategies are very relevant for bringing about wisdom. He has work on what he calls the Solomon effect. Let me describe it to you, and you'll see why these disruptive, these centering strategies can be so powerful. Get people to find a problem that's very messy, problematic, and that they're stuck in. Usually it's an interpersonal problem, because as Sartre said, hell is other people. So is heaven, by the way, he didn't say that. But Right? The, our deepest and most pervasive problems are generally problems with other people. Why? Because the thing that is, I've mentioned this before, that is most predictive of how meaningful your life is, is your meaningful relationships to others. The problem is human beings are endlessly complex. Okay? So you're describing this interpersonal problem, and when people describe it, they are, of course, mesmerized by the mirage of their own egocentric perspective. They describe it without thought, default, from the first-person perspective. And they remain stuck. Remember this notion of stuckness. We'll come back to it again when we talk about Gnosis and Gnosticism. Then you get the person to re-describe the same problem from the third-person perspective. 
you get them to decenter. What will often happen is they will break frame. They will realize the way in which they have been blocked, systematically locked, in not solving their problem. They'll often have a central insight into how to resolve their problem. This is why it's called the Solomon Effect, because it tends to make you more wise. Think about the radical decentering that's going on in these awakening experiences, in these higher states of consciousness. Notice the systematicity of the error of egocentrism. It's not an error in this problem, or this problem, or this problem. It's a systematic error. That's why it's often described with metaphors of like being asleep. Because when you wake up, you have a systematic change in your consciousness. So what's happening in these higher states of consciousness, in these awakening experiences, you're getting a transformation, an intervention in systematic error. You're seeing through illusion precisely because of the powerful decentering that they are affording for you. Now that, of course, can be a powerfully traumatic experience. It can be a terrifying experience. Pursuing this in an autodidactic fashion, like all autodidactic, being a completely self-taught, right, is very, very dangerous. Autodidacts tend to get into echo chambers, vicious circles of their own egocentric entombment and entrapment. The Buddha gives a wonderful parable about this. He says, this is how you catch a monkey. You put some pitch on a piece of wood and it looks like something very shiny and tasty. It's, it's salient, it's attractive. And so the monkey grabs it with its hand and it gets stuck. And then it uses its other hand to try and free itself and it gets stuck. So it uses its right foot and then its left foot and then it puts its head and its mouth on and then it's completely trapped and then the hunter comes and kills it. Okay. But decentering can alleviate that but if you are still pursuing this as an isolated individual, as an autodidact, and think about how ill-prepared, unskilled, untutored, and egocentrically you are trying to confront this radical transformation. That is why I think it is a very poor idea for people to take psychedelics without having them placed within a wisdom tradition in which they have a committed community that can give outside, decentering, and wise advice for how to process and handle these transformations. But once again, I point to you to an aspect of the meaning crisis. We have institutions of information we have institutions of knowledge, we have traditions, and we have respected experts 
to give us guidance. We do not have this for wisdom. Now what is amazing, of course, is that some individuals like Siddhartha are able to do it as individuals. I want to point out two things about that. They deserve our admiration for successfully doing it as individuals, even though the Buddha had training from other people all along the way. But we should not take from that some kind of promotion of our North American individualism. Because the Buddha made it very clear that the Sangha, the community, was necessary for the cultivation of these transformative states. So, you've got this radical decentering. It can afford wisdom. And I want to try and show you how it's not just a perspectival knowing, it's not just a, a radical transformation in our salience landscape. This is a participatory change. This involves not just the machinery of cognition or the machinery of consciousness. This alters the machinery of the self and therefore is also fundamentally a transformation of character. Remember, participatory knowing is knowing by conforming. Well, the radical at-oneness of these brings about a radical kind of participatory knowing. We'll come back to this when we return and talk about Plotinus. But right, it's so beautiful precisely because the coupling is so profound. And think about you're getting reciprocal rev- revelation. The rever- world is revealing itself more deeply. And more depths of yourself are being revealed in a coupled fashion. Well, that's, that, that's love. Love is mutually accelerating disclosure. If you want somebody, if, if you want to fall in love with somebody, although, although you, shouldn't, you can never sort of pursue it that way, I think. In a, but what, what happens is if you get two people mutually disclosing from each other in a coupled fashion, I, discl- I honestly disclose something about myself and then you in response disclose. And then I pick that up and disclose more and then you disclose. That reciprocal, enhanced, Mutual conforming engenders love. And love is something you know by participating in it, like your culture and your language. This is knowing by loving. Knowing by loving. I really like that uh, definition he used. Love is mutually accelerating disclosure. Yeah, man. (laughs) Isn't that great? Yeah. World revealing, so the transcendent experiences, so beautiful, so profound, and that they're world revealing and self-revealing at once in a coupled fashion. A participatory knowing, radical participatory knowing, like an inter-knowing almost, with the world, other people, everything becomes this interconnected flow that is feeding in on itself and yeah. yeah it's just revealing 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 so i want to bring up what he said in his recap of last week's episode about the this 
flow state in the altered states mm-hmm. is not necessarily skilled based in the sense of like or um you know mastery or expertise within a skill like say if you're like going into the flow state as an athlete or going into the flow state as a musician or whatever this is the flow state of um having an optimal grip on the world yes yes so it's and that's just one aspect of the transcendent yeah. or the mm-hmm. higher state of consciousness experience mm-hmm. is that you so we have the per- pervasive sense of oneness the sense of deep profound identity mm-hmm. with the world this indescribable inevitability about it um quant- a quantum change that can occur in mm-hmm. one's character and one's sense of experience and relation with the world and by quantum change, we mean it's quite the cool. idea of yeah. higher states of understanding. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like you said, uh, b- bad uh, bad term, but really good concept. Yeah, but it's a very immersive yeah. understanding. And this comes about because of, yeah, and that's, that's right. It's like uh, the transcendent experience is akin to a flow state of an optimal grip yeah. on reality. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And, and it, it, it functions like science, like what he was saying, yeah. you know, which finds the invariant within all the different variants. That's what it does. Um, it gives us disruptive strategies that reveal the real patterns that are invariant in the world yeah. and are in, our, mm-hmm. in ourselves. And it exposes the, the systemic errors, the errors that yes. happen consistently yes. through all the changes as well. Um, yes. And, you know, you're doing this in a very, like you said, participatory way, like you're you're mm-hmm. doing it. It's a whole chain of interconnected problems, Mm -hmm. like the ego is Mm -hmm. that kind of total systemic misframing of reality. Mm -hmm. So when we're decentering from the egocentric first-person perspective to an allocentric Mm third-person, we are allowing ourselves to have more meaningful engagement, Mm -hmm. a deeper sense of meaning in life, and deeper meaningful engagement with other people interpersonally. And he brought up the Solomon effect, which is... Yeah, sorry, I cut you off there, yeah. yeah. The Solomon effect. That's right. Interpersonal. Um, I, I just wanted to say there while yeah. we were talking about that uh, systematic error. Mm. It's a systematic error of egocentrism that has yes. become an apparent. Yes. The, yes. And so it affects everything. That's that why sense it's systematic. Of comes it's, in, right? it's not just, you know, a problem with your personality or just a problem with, mm-hmm. with uh, you know, one thing or another. It's all the things are affected by. Yes. Yeah. So we become aware uh through the Solomon effect that allows us to become yeah. more wise. Yeah, and so the Solomon effect is like if you have like a, you know, a messy situation between, you know, like usually between two people, an interpersonal mm-hmm. thing where it's like me versus them. Right. What you get is you, the individuals involved have an introspective bias, an ego bias, you know, seeing it from their inside, yeah. looking out, and, you know, how I feel about this, and how, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you then re-ask the question or have them re-describe the situation but from a third person yes like an objective standpoint and the effect you get being able to see the own errors within your arguments and your feelings Mm -hmm. is the solemn effect i'm gonna have to remind remember that that term the solemn effect because it's good to just do that it's beautiful how it reveals itself through the course of a psychedelic trip Mm -hmm. as verbeke goes on further in this episode that that inner realization uh yeah and of, the, of that systematic error that yeah. can occur and so the intervention um that the systematic errors allow is what allows us to decenter, to break frame to gain new insight and through that insight mm-hmm. actually solve our deepest yep. problems so we can 
actually allow for resolutions to occur. Um, now, these realization, the, the comprehension of these systemic errors, it can be traumatic. Some, some of it mm -hmm. in, in initially can feel terrifying to the ego. It can also be transcendent, blissful, uh, re reviving, like revolutionary, like an inner revolution. Um, yeah, huh. revitalizing, reawakening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we understand psychedelics and a wisdom tradition is what we're missing today. Or yeah, and that's, that's the dangers of the autodidact, that, you know, being an autodidact. And I, I, to a certain degree, am on that kind of spectrum because most of the things I get interested, I have to teach myself. And then I figured out how to use the Internet and yes, find, find the people. others. Yes, you know, people with more knowledge than you and learn from them. But um, the entrapment with, I think he used the term rabbit holes, but, you know, like mm. if you don't have a tradition of, finding the wisdom behind or using wisdom to find what's true you're more likely to be pulled into you know like say like the flat earth end of things or the you know the ancient aliens end of thing and you know who knows right. maybe it's ancient aliens but you become fixated and you know that's yes. that's the problem of scaling up like if you always scale up yeah you can become fixated on that, certain that's why things. it's so good to have a fellowship or mm -hmm. practice that yeah. you're involved in which are our friend and bandmate Jesse from American Dharma mm -hmm. can tell us as he's involved with the Zen group, uh, Endless Mountain Zendo. And so, yeah, I forgot where I was going to go there. Um, um, he mentioned, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we have no respected experts in this wisdom tradition. And particularly with the psychedelics, which, you know, he, you know, he mentioned they are, mm -hmm. you know, dangerous for like, say like, well, you know, I'm going to teach myself and gather the knowledge for myself and do that we've we've all seen that if you've been part of the festival scene or the psychonaut grouping of people or the experimenters and triers and all that stuff you'll see people that go really far into it and they become like wow you know That's like it. all this stuff but nothing they're talking about makes any actual sense but it feels like it makes sense to them yes yes but in a fellowship yeah. we can help yeah, each other check tune, each other and be like yeah dude you're a little you're a little out can, there like check this out and yeah. calibrate our non-dual mm -hmm. state yeah. Um, yeah. Our relation of self with the world, and we can well, we can help this this enhance this reciprocative the re reciprocal relationship or this reciprocal action that's happening within the the altered experience as well. Right. Having people yeah. there too to, you know, like do the is this real? Is this really? Yeah. That so yeah. sangha, church, communion, fellowship, mm -hmm. satsang. It's all very very important. For us as a species, in fact, every single culture mm -hmm. that we look at in human history, when we go back, we see that they all had very deeply intertwined sacred traditions of passing along wisdom and achieving higher states of consciousness within the membership, within, mm -hmm. within their members. And we, we have certainly lost that. Well, we've, we've been talking about this. I don't know if we've talked about it on the so cast. Time to rebuild. But yeah, like... The coffee shop thing, bring that back, bring back where you can actually, like places where you can talk about things like this, like reclaim your pub, get a table in the middle of the day at the pub and talk about meaning and life and gaining wisdom and stuff like this. We we used to, you know, that's what the public houses were for, or like the men's club. Men would, you know, get around, lift weights and talk about stuff. That's right. what they, well, town squares, what they you know? or town squares, town squares. Um, uh, in the commons. In common areas, 
we got to reclaim our common yeah. areas. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it, and start discussing things like this, opposed to like, yeah, did you hear what the Kardashians and, are up to? And perfect our wisdom traditions. You know, if yeah. you're going to approach a plant medicine, yeah. um, you know, disclaimer: don't break any laws, but make sure that you're approaching them with a sense of reverence. Treat these substances as sacred as they are, as if you were going to a Buddhist monastery or to Catholic mass or yeah, uh, Catholic mass. Know, exactly. Or if you're going to Mecca to see what they're doing there, you know, like mm-hmm. my, I was talking with my brother yesterday. Yeah, and go he's with like, an intention, do it like, prayerfully, do it yeah. and don't, don't do it like in a party atmosphere, do it somewhere safe, you know, get your set in your setting, meaning the setting that you're going to be doing it in nice, clean, optimized blankets, pillows, good music, mm-hmm. things ready. Well, and also your mindset should be well, prepared for this thing and ultimately do so after like a traumatic experience if you just had a breakup or something wait, wait unless you're weeks. willing to do the work yeah you you're, still you're going into it knowing it's going to hit gonna you take over yeah, yeah. you want to be in a good mind state because it's going to be heavy well you could you know you got heavy stuff going on at that time if we now if you got to work through some stuff yeah i mean but let it yeah. sit let, let your body go through don't it. work it on your personal emotions. stuff at the party you yeah know? work on the high level stuff a little bit after you've done your well, a lot of our celebratory traditions, you know, if like if we had, you know, okay, let, let's just say like a culture of wisdom tradition tied to mind-altering practices, those parties are where you do the things and you would like, depending on the event that you're going to, like if it's a celebration of feasting and togetherness and warm, you know, like the, the winter traditions that's what you're getting out of the whole experience and you're learning to love your family and bring mm-hmm. a deeper connection, but it's still a party, you know, you're still drinking and hanging out and doing whatever people do for their, you know, whatever party. But then there's other celebrations that are, you know, some are more reserved like Easter. Like if you know, look at that, that's more of a reserved holiday. It's still a feasting holiday, but I don't, I don't get, I don't, I don't, you know, get drunk with my siblings on Easter, you know, whereas like Christmas is sit down, have some beers, eat a bunch of food, you know, like, yeah, yeah, it's never as big a feast yeah. holiday, as but it's it's the more of a reverence holiday. holiday. You know, this yeah. is when you know celebration came of back. the rebirth. Yeah, when yeah. the birds and the bees and the bunnies. And well, and then there's starts to then there's the you know May Day festival. You know, that's all about being merry, and I'm yeah, I'm fairly certain the culture the culture that came up with the May Day festival was also eating eating some funny things <laughs> while they're doing it. Oh yeah, I've I've hung out with a lot of uh, we'll, we'll just say quote unquote pagans. We know all the humans before us have. And, and they've yeah. done it for well it, tens of thousands. If it's there, we're going to eat it. Years. That's that's just if it doesn't kill us, probably we're gonna millions eat it. of years. Yeah, really. Yeah, the stone ape theory. Yeah, most definitely. Bill Bill Hicks' uh, interpretation. I mean, we've been hunters and gatherers for such a long time. Yeah, we 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 know all the local flora and fauna very well, and we know what's magical and what is not. And mm-hmm. we certainly perfected the use of these uh, sacramental magical fruits of the planet mm-hmm. over many thousands of years and many other ways of achieving those higher states because we also do have the dmt 
endogenous well i think probably even like times of you know like when the weather was harsh and it's hard to find food and you're on like you and everybody else is on the brink of starvation and having to walk for a long period of time because microclimate where you're at has changed yeah right doing the long walk while you're starving and, and needing water will put you in another state too so even you know like yeah. it's almost like our biology is geared to for as a survival thing to put us in these altered states when we it is. need to and then we figured yeah. out how to do it for ourselves and now we're figuring out ways to do it optimally and by now i mean like mm-hmm. for the past we've been homo sapiens sapiens growing stuff in the ground we've been doing it with intention now and it's like okay well i notice i kind of get higher than things when i go on a really long run and i'm constantly running i'm exhausted i'm constantly yeah. running oh i mean the okay, athletic well, flow getting... state's probably yeah. a combination of like adrenaline and oh yeah that, uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah you get it. And then imagine that on top of like your body's already pumping in endorphins because you're a little undernourished mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe you're like really fatigued. So your body's putting the feel good chemicals to deal with the fact that like your whole body's screaming at you to stop. Yeah. Right. And, you know, yeah. yeah. So, we'll, you know, humans will figure out a way to get high <laughs> one yeah, way or another. <laughs> yeah. And by that, I mean, get into a higher state of understanding, get high. Yeah. That way. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what we're doing. We're. We're breaking frame. We are mm-hmm. we are interrupting our thought pattern with disruptive strategies. And Vivek is about to go into the, to that mm-hmm. now and how that's helped the neural network AIs that we're working on to actually be able to – it's helped us perfect them mm. and allow them to work better. So we're introducing static. We're in, introducing yeah. randomness because – and that's why in the last episode we discussed – our Vivek discussed how we – how our brains – like lose their train of thought, how we get distracted, how we have trouble mm-hmm. focusing on anything for a long period of time. It's actually healthy for our brains to do that. It's useful for yeah. them to do that. It's allowing them to introduce static, introduce randomness, and then return so that we have to reframe mm-hmm. the thing. And we keep on reframing. And each time we're doing that, it's like we're refocusing and we're getting a better fit on it, better yeah. understanding of how to tune into this particular thing that we're looking at. So, yeah, I think that covers... Uh, that first 15 minutes or so then yeah and where i guess we're the last part where we we're at is where we started with love is mutually accelerating um disclosure yes and this idea of knowing by loving by constantly accelerating disclosure of, self-revealing yeah. disclosure in a coupled fashion yeah yeah that's beautiful and we need we need community more than ever no doubt we do indeed all right, guys, we're jumping back in now to john verveke's awakening from the meaning crisis higher states of consciousness part two This is episode 12 of the series. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that some recent cognitive science research can give us some understanding about why this decentering and this transformation of the sense of self might be functional here. There's a lot of work. I would recommend to you the work of Suey and Humphrey from 2015, for example, showing that one of the functions of yourself right? Not, not your mind, but yourself, is to act as glue. This is a term they use. It's a metaphor. By making things relevant to myself, I can make them relevant to each other and glue them together. So, and, and, and I'm always doing that, right? I'm simultaneously gluing things together as I'm gluing myself together. What the self is, is a powerful set of functions for integrating, actually complexifying processing. To say you have a self 
is to say you have a systematic set of functions that are integrating, not homogenizing, complexifying things together. Now, if you remember, we talked about the work of Michael Anderson, acceptation, the acceptation of the tongue. Here's a proposal to you. This powerful machinery that is central to your cognitive agency, your ability to make sense of the world by gluing the world together as you're gluing yourself together, this powerful machinery of complexification of information and information processing can be exacted. What if you were to take all that machinery of integration that you're using to integrate yourself and you turned it onto the world? What if you took all of that capacity to glue things together and you exapted it on the world. Well, that would mean that machinery that was normally self-focused about integrating the self and integrating its processing could be used to achieve a de deeper integration of the world, to reveal deeper underlying patterns. Novark in 96, Glaxton in 2000, both suggest with argumentation and with phenomenological evidence, and many reports from people who are undergoing mystical experiences seem to corroborate this, that what seems to happen is all of the energy and machinery that has been bound up in our self has been turned onto the world. That's why the world comes alive to us and we see so deeply into it. Imagine the intimacy you have in your self-knowledge being turned on to the world. So all of that energy that's stored up in your egocentric processing, all the time and the resource and all the, who am I? What else? What's going on? Oh, how is it? Oh, how is this? Oh, brother, uh, all, that, all of that. Imagine if you could take that machine and say, forget about John Verveke. Just for a while, even. Turn it on. The, turn all that massive machine onto the world. Radical, radical decentering. I propose to you is doing exactly that. All of the time and effort and processing and skill and memory and structures that we've built into our ego could be exapted to disclose the world. And that, of course, would be coupled with a radical sense of moving into the being mode and a radical sense of remembering who and what we really are. So, what I've tried to show you is we can understand the higher cognitive process at the psychological level in terms of this decentering, the acceptation of the self-machinery, uh, flowing optimal grip, right? enhanced awareness of invariance, both in the positive sense and in the ability that allows us to pick up on systematic error. We can see why this machinery 
is operating and producing the experiential profile it is producing. What about at the information processing level? I don't want to get very technical here, but this is the level at which we, we turn to work that's being done in machine learning, artificial intelligence, where people are actually trying to make machines that make sense of the world. And what kind of strategies do they come up with for trying to get the machines to be better learners? Well, one, one interesting thing is precisely the use of disruptive strategies. So Woodward et al. in 2014, this, uh, uh, this is a direct quote from them, right? They, they I'll give you the quote in a sec. They introduced randomization into a neural network. A neural network is a very powerful and cutting-edge form of artificial intelligence that in some important ways mimics how brains work. And when you're training these neural you don't program them. You train them to learn for themselves, right? But very often what you have to do is you have to introduce noise, entropy, randomness into these networks. In fact, he goes on to say that such randomness, quote, is essential aspect, an essential aspect of the self-optimization process. You have to, so what, these are not people doing psychology, these are not people trying to understand higher states of consciousness. What they're trying to do is they're trying to make neural networks that learn better, that can self-optimize, and what they do, what they say is essential, that's the word he used, to this is disruption. Disruptive strategies. Why? See, the problem with powerful machines is they pick up on patterns. And you say, well, but John, that's good. Isn't picking up patterns good? Well, remember all the stuff we've talked about, about when we talked about implicit learning and picking up on only correlational patterns, not picking up on real patterns. See, the problem you face is you're always sampling from the world. So here's your experience, and then here's the world. And there's some pattern in your experience. And what you want to know, is that, is that pattern in the world or not? This is, we invented a whole discipline to deal with this. It's called statistics. All statistics is basically this problem. How do I know if the patterns in my sample are the same as the patterns in the world? How do I know that? Right? So, for example, if I was in class at U of T, and I, let's say it's an even huge class, 500 students, Psych 100, and I say, how many people here think that student tuition should be reduced, or school should be free? And they all put up their hands. Should I then conclude, look, the overwhelming majority of people think that student tuition should be reduced. You'd say, that's ridiculous, and this is what you should say, because that is not a representative sample. The pattern there is all students. You need the sample to have the same patterns as the environment. So why is that relevant to disruption? Very often, what will happen with these neural networks is they will overfit to the data. they will too tightly pick up on the pattern in the sample, a pattern that does not generalize to the rest of the world. So let me give you a, a way of understanding this graphically. So very often, right, 
we're, we're like you've been probably taught this, right? You do a scatter plot, you point your point, right? And then you don't typically draw a line like this to try and capture the data. Instead, what we typically do is a line of best fit, which might not touch any of the data points. This is called data compression, the line of best fit. Why do we do that? We do that in science because what we're trying to find is the function that will generalize, that will go to all kinds of different contexts, that will not be true just of this sample, but will be true of the population. But what the networks do is they do this. They overfit to the data. They track a function that perfectly describes the sample, but does not generalize to the population. Precisely because they're so powerful, they overfit. So what do you do? Well, you, you, can, you can throw some noise into the system. You can turn off. You can do dropout. You can turn off half of the nodes. You basically disrupt the processing a lot. Because what the disruption does is it prevents you from overfitting to the data, and it actually allows you to compress. And what does the compression do? It allows you to find the real invariants, the real patterns that will generalize across all the varying contexts. Now, of course, right? you don't want to underfit. If you underfit, then you're not picking up on any patterns at all. So notice again. You, these systems have to toggle. They have to toggle back and forth. They have to disrupt, right? Very analogous to breaking frame in order so they can make a better frame. And they're trying to find that sweet spot between disruptive variation and compression to detect real patterns that allows them to become good learners. So what we know is that Again, you have to have disruptive strategies set within powerful pattern detection. That's exactly what we're seeing at work, as I mentioned to you, in these people that are pursuing these higher states of consciousness. It's also, again, why belonging to a tradition that can afford powerful pattern detection, introduce disruption when needed, and guide you to help toggle to find the sweet spot is very, very important. If you want to be really good at jamming, and you, right, you have to have the requisite skill. Jamming without jazz just, sorry, jamming without skill just gives you junk, doesn't give you jazz. So what's going on in the brain? So notice, notice what I'm showing you here. The machines are doing, right, the compression. That compression is, right, that toggling of attention that you see going on in the higher state of con. They're, open, they're disrupting and then compressing, and they're trying to find the huge invariance patterns, but they're trying to break frame. and They're doing stuff that seems, I think, plausible to say is analogous to what we see going on at the psychological level within people. What about at the brain level? Well, this is where we have to turn to Newberg, because he's done most of the work on 
tracking brains as people are having these kinds of experiences. All right, before we jump into Nuremberg. Yes. Yeah. So we'll talk about why decentering is useful and the functions of the self to like act as a glue that makes Mm -hmm. all the things relevant to our sense of self kind of packaged together in our awareness. This allows us to integrate and complexify our functioning and 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 that again generates the sense of self. So it gives us cognitive agency, but this can be exapted. This could be mm-hmm. exapted from just focusing on the self in a self-centered, egocentric way, mm-hmm. like our typical functionality. Not even in like the excessive, like ego, ultra proud, like sense of self-centered, but just the typical mode of thinking. We're very. Yeah, yeah self-aware well, and self-focused it's of course the, it's the, the work that you alive. do on yourself the natural function but yeah the human being is actually yeah. capable of this allocentric yeah. mode as well that high level uh, practitioners of various wisdom schools mm-hmm. and meditative arts um, can actually employ and, and uh, embody very well for us um, and that's the capacity to connect from not from the self-focus, but from a deeper integration with the world and its underlying patterns. So now we're taking all of that machinery, as Vervega described, that helps us describe this sense of self and allow us to connect things that are relevant in our field of awareness together. You can use that on the world to reveal its underlying patterns. And this comes with a deep sense of intimacy and disclosure of reality, a sense of communal reality with the world and you start you feel this sense of oneness and integration and interconnection yeah so this is a radical sense of remembering the being mode when yeah. one is in this state and we we you know as a species have a you know pretty good understanding of how to understand ourselves we've been developing that for a long time and so we have a good tool set and all we got to do is be able to turn it outward onto yeah. the world to understand the world just as intimately mm-hmm. as we understand ourselves mm-hmm. and not it, it, you know and it's a back and forth too it's the you know the toggling um between you know you gotta think like you know you have to do self-centered thinking because you're a, a self so you center your thinking on yourself, get that right, then move out into the world with the understanding of now that you have the world, then you can turn it back in and then, you know, like reverse it. learn to reverse it, it and, and then, operate from the being mode yeah, allocentrically. Yeah, and then yeah. gain insight within the self and then turn that back out mm-hmm. and gain insight about the world and then turn that back in and then gain insight about the self and then turn that back out into the world. It's, uh, it's the, the non-dual scaling. Yeah, I want to stay in there in that perfect middle path yeah. that is like an allocentric realization and understanding of you know, because we're remembering what we really mm-hmm. are is the is the feeling, the deep sense of it, the coming home feeling of it, the yeah. the extra sense of reality to it is is all coming from that. It's and this this radical sense of remembering what we really are um, allows us to increasingly be in us if if one is cultivating this practice, this art, this net, this way of being that is natural to us, but it does require our attention and our care um 
this can be an ever deepening state. And even when the body is in the having mode, one is in this allocentric mode, being aware of that with kind of a loving grace, watching what is happening within the body. Oh, that at least that's what we seem to see in well, that would be the very high level sages and masters of that our would past. be the ideal, you know, mm-hmm. even if you don't hit for it, it, it like hit that, it's still something and to you see that in our elders, towards. like their increased levels of mm-hmm. patience, even compared to their children with their grandchildren when they're interacting. Mm-hmm. It's you can see that gained wisdom of that life experience in a more allocentric, left, less self. Well, it's almost like way. if. It's turning the, the, the ego into what it should be, which is a tool to be used to understand from a separate perspective. You know, so we're not just all one being all mashed up. You know, you do have the self. The self, you know, the self, like if you were to like have the world and then the self, ego would be within the self realm or self would be in the ego realm. But ego is a, a tool. A tool we use so we can have this conversation and watch yeah. this guy here doing this yeah. as three separate beings opposed to just one soup it allow it almost allows for more potentials more complications more information to interact as more things become more things and more aware of each other in these things and then more aware of themselves and then realizing they have to like not just figure out themselves or or just the other thing but also the world that both things exist in and then all the other stuff and then cascading enhancements and enlightenments yeah. all at once and well when you're in a heart these higher states of consciousness, particularly through things like psilocybin or LSD or DMT, they almost, I don't want to say put it on overdrive because it's not like an overdriven thing. It's just happening faster and more graceful. And the insights start cascading on each other and you don't have to intellectualize them to understand them and, and have them revealed no. to you in the moment. Yeah. It, it's like deep chains. It's of like, epith- Oh yeah, I remember that. that are interconnected and yeah, built upon one another. I remember that. Yeah. And remember that. Yeah. Yeah, what was it? It's like, what if God is infinity, and the only way to achieve the experience of of infinity to rejoice in the experience of its infinity was to create this multiplex of positions of of potentiality from infinite Mm -hmm. different positions and Mm -hmm. perspectives, and so it shines its awareness like that. That uh, that great analogy of the crystal and the light from within the crystal shining out its many different faces, mm-hmm. each one slightly different and unique, but from one and the same. Well, I guess, yeah, for that, it, it does require... How does it experience love? And, and how does infinity experience infinity? There's I, I think be- it has to first shatter itself. Um, which is like the introduction of the idea of separate things. And then it has mm-hmm. to work its way back into oneness again through yeah. those separate things. Realize all of the complexity and the depth and beauty of love through the realization of the growth of it and growth into mm-hmm. it through deeper, deepening and deeper and deeper uh, states of communion and interaction and appreciation and, you know how many different ways love can be felt from animals to humans with all our different personalities and unique circumstances and how the moments play upon themselves to build into these these moments that we remember for the rest of our lives that create whole families so i i was having a thought earlier um 
Yeah, it's the holidays. You, you, yeah, so you'll see people. Yeah, I've been watching people. You know, people get a puppy and this, that, or the other for holidays. Because well, I like cute cat videos and stuff like that. And it's the holidays, so you see it. But I noticed that <clears throat> people cry for two reasons: either you're very sad and in a lot of pain, or you're really happy and it's way too much for you, and you break down and start crying. Yeah. See, you know, what is so that excruciating like, good feeling? I yeah. love that. Well, that would be, you know, I like get that love. books and That movies. would be one of the better forms of love. That's joy. You know, that's joy. What yeah, is, yeah, it's but good. it's so it's, good it's it like makes a, you, you know, Your cry. body is just celebrating the good. Well, and that's why you get like weepy-eyed when you see like, you know, kittens being that's rescued. That's when you know you're tuned and, in, you know, too. That's just like yeah. the response you get from mm-hmm. the universe when you're tuned in. All of a sudden, you are in concert with it, and it rejoices with you, and there's like this key Wait, it turn. re- Rejoices, rejoice, yeah. like yeah, rejoice, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See what we did there, yeah, yeah. Rebecca, this is <laughs> your fault. I'm going to keep ago. doing this with words, language, uh, yeah. But yeah, I bring that up too because it's like when you're when you're talking about love and all of its expressions and the way it feels, like ultimately, mm-hmm. like we have emotional display mechanisms, you know, smiling, frowning, crying, and stuff like that. And some of them, like, you know, smiling, frowning, and other things are to communicate with other people. But, like, crying is unique, and crying happens either with intense love and, and joy or intense pain and the, and the losing of love. Yeah. So, you know, hey, let's figure out what, the, you know, the crying mechanism's for. Because as far as I'm, as far as I know, as far as crying when they're sad, I think humans are pretty much it. Most animals, if they have tear ducts, will, you know cry because there's stuff in their eyes or there's something wrong with them but mm-hmm. humans we we, we should we're social we're, we're such cultural you know that's our our superpower is our cultural yeah no well it ain't claws way of being together <laughs> yeah yeah but no, it's our yeah it's our capacity to come up with it and develop actual cultures and deep senses of interconnection mm-hmm. through our music and our arts and our language and Oh. yeah we've been interweaving our cultures for for so long too yeah and it's almost like we everything has an earthling flavor and vibe to it yeah we started out as one human culture when we were only a few a few hundreds of of this weird ape that decided to be very not ape-like and do non-ape-like things yeah and then there was a breaking like so you know like a a movement out from that and then distinctions between them start happening because you know some go more close to swamps and some are more in this area and then eventually they all kind of develop to the same understanding and now we're somewhat hominid and we start engaging with each other and we come together but then we start moving out again and then we come back together and then we start moving out again. Weird. So like we're like we make and break species at one point. We make and break we make and break cultures like out of like necessity. It helps it grow like, you know, because then we, you know, came to a near extinction level as Homo sapiens sapiens. Mm-hmm. And so there was only a few people scattered around. So those were centralized cultures that then spread out, became their own unique cultures, then all merged together into a super culture, but then spread out again and then started blending with other ones. And it's like making them and then breaking them apart and spreading it out and then making it again. It's very much like, you know, how flowers do. Yeah. You know, uh, like all of life. Like dandelions. Yeah. yeah just the way it and fractals out, and out. Again and then come together. Mm-hmm. But that's just, you know, that's another reflection of that reciprocal toggling between two things, but on like a 
evolutionary scale and then a cultural evolutionary scale too. So what we're doing within our minds and then trying to do to understand the world, we're also doing over long periods of time with culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, as people move, that's what we do. We move around. And when there was a lot more world and less people, we were, it was more straight lines, but now it's, we're doing these, movements around and even our ideas and thoughts and like fads and other things do this very cyclical instead of just one direction going in this direction you see like things looping back around you can you know see mm-hmm. this in like the kids fashion too it's like this weird like tinge of the 90s is starting to touch things again just ever yeah. so slightly you know and it's just all kind of yeah well if you imagined yeah. all of our different cultures as different instruments coming into a room and then inspiring one another and learning to play together that's kind of what's been happening the mm-hmm. last few thousand especially yeah. the last couple hundred years well it's interesting that you especially the last 20 years once you yeah. throw the internet into the mix oh yeah well you mentioned instruments you can actually trace the cultures and migrations of people through what instruments that are traditional to mm-hmm. them um you know like what we think of as the guitar has had a very like, well, there's two movements from India into Europe musically, but so they they created this kind of looping, and we got things like you know the the dulcimer and or, or excuse me the lap dulcimer yeah. and other dulcimer, and then the mandolin and things like that during those migrations. But what ends up happening is people start using them together, and then what works they start using more, but then they start modifying things, and then yes. new instruments pop up for a new need. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly you know like the base end of things, you know, mm-hmm. like, so oh, how do you build this thing that, you know, has the low end on this? Cause now we got, you know, this and we got this and it's, um, yeah. Going from upright bass to electric bass. Yeah. Well, even, even before that, you know, there's a, I forget what it's called, but it's an African instrument and you hold it like this and there's this big barrel gourd and it's got long strings and you play it with your thumb and that's, it's kind of like cool. a bass banjo. Whoa. If you could imagine something like that. Um, and it's a really interesting sound. But, you know, they come because, you know, multiple instruments come together. What works, they work on. What doesn't, they either modify. And there's instruments we don't use anymore, like the harpsichord. Hardly anybody, unless you're playing specific period music, uses the freaking harpsichord. You know, that's... Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's just a... You know, yeah, just the organ, the big church organ. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, those are just unfeasible to have, but you can also... Now we, now we got technology, instrument. so you can make all the sounds anyway, so if you want it. So that's where everything's homogenized down, actually, musically speaking. Now yeah. you can do it all from a MIDI controller. Hmm. But now there's a bunch of different kinds of MIDI controllers, so you can get more expressions and play it a little differently and change how you play. You know, And now there's toys to plug into them, so it's, it's centralized down and then expanded back out again. You, you still know? have to have the building shaped to get the level of acoustics that you get yeah in those ancient con- cathedrals oh yeah no, a, a real church the fidelity is, yeah. of the actual but you can't wooden, re- wooden pipes you and, can't really record that accurately to the experience of being in in there though that's one thing our recording mm-hmm. still not good enough for like even you know down in harper's ferry that church no, down well, there there's so, aspects of it that you're feeling yeah no you, you, know? you literally feel and it through your body through and in your, your body head and, and you're hearing in ways you hear that you don't forehead. understand yeah yeah, and it cre- it it creates a uh, frame breaking disruptive experience. Oh, show, 
I think that was, you know, the intention behind designing, you know, churches with that sound effect. Yeah. Because when you get hit, you get hit with the pure voices and what the human voice can do. Then in, a, in an environment that reflects it really good, mm-hmm. you literally start like weeping and like, you know, like, you know, going into it's a mode here. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, those are finely tuned experiences that we're mm-hmm. building, and so yeah, we've kind of let let these arts fall into decay. Yeah. But it is about. You know, it's about that time for us to uh, be doing this this process of rebuilding, breaking apart, rebuilding. We need radical decentering. We need radical decentering now. <laughs> radical decentering. <laughs> oh man, okay, dude. If I right. yeah. yeah, let's let's we're we're yeah. definitely jumping off on tangents here. Yeah. Let's get back. Uh, sense so, making machines. So yes, the machinery bound up and the building of the self is being turned to the world with that level of intimacy to disclose reality the reality of the world and be in that being mode sense of remembering what we are with the world as the world itself. And, uh, and the enhanced awareness of the invariance of systemic error that comes with this, the disruptive strategies we, that we utilize allow for a randomization, um, into our patterns of, it, it helps us fine tune our, since making of patterns in reality and within ourselves now we've turned this into ai and he goes off on a tangent there talking about ai a little bit we get into statistics well real quick though jump in with anything here yeah so like on the ai and the the problem with machines um well so what they have to do is they have they're they're in they're introducing variations you know so disrupt a way to disrupt uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's you know chaotic noise or an entropic signal or whatever, um, just how ourself with our sense of getting distracted, but and then coming we naturally we naturally tend to pick up like we do the average, the compression average, whereas the mm-hmm. machine just wants to like hold on to each data. It point. wants to get that pattern perfect. Yeah, but in order to, to get that to do something that can be replicated <laughs> in reality. Well, and, and what they're doing with these neural networks by introducing destructive strategies is helping the machine um, find out what the actual invariant distribution is. Yeah. Because when you like say have a find a line that is a good equal measure between all of them. Yeah. um, That generalizes. So it generalizes is an optimization process. And it would even, you know, it would, when you say like give give the ai a bit of information with 12 points mm-hmm. then take out six points in the next then put some back and take out the other ones then put mm-hmm. them back eventually it's going to get to the point where it's going to read that average line yes. down the middle because yes. of what's so there it won't and be what's overfit, not it, yes overfit to reality and you can also be underfit so we need this dis- dis- uh, these disruptive strategies uh such as mindfulness techniques meditation yeah. uh plant medicine so on and so forth because there are powerful pattern detection optimizing yeah. art forms, basically. Yeah. So, you know, why, and now we consider why belonging to a tradition uh, is so helpful in further helping us reinforce our pattern recognition and our disruptive pattern recognition framework. Mm-hmm. You got people that are helping you calibrate and fine tune it that are experts at tracking and understanding mm-hmm. where, where these mistakes well, can be made, where one veers uh, a bit off the path. Perhaps the AI needs a sense of self because we use self 
you know, the relationship between self and other things to gauge where we're at and then get, step outside of ourself as well. That's kind of a, so kind of a scary that thought. You know, how our attention works into these uh, self-learning neural network AI uh, tools I guess, to allow them to be better at learning. So, yeah, they're, they're introducing randomness just like we do. I guess what they're doing here... With our short attention spans. Without the self, they're not toggling between like self and the world. They're tog- toggling between the compression... So, you know, the general, general, the line of generalization and um, introduction of, you know, noise. Yes. Um, and that would be the, to- the toggling between the compressing of things mm-hmm. and adding noise and compressing yeah, of things. Yeah, it's going to be accurate enough. Yeah. So those would be, that would be, be the too. machine's parameters. Yeah. Which, you it's know. An, it's amazing how it learns to do it, too, just like we do. Well, we, we should start really putting love into our machines a lot more if we're going to be getting AIs that, you know, are meaning making. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and uh, I think that catches us up. Yeah, mm-hmm. he talks about compression, the toggling, and the yeah. toggling of attention yeah. to fine tune. And we will uh, jump back in here now, or is it a good uh, time to take, take a quick, a quick break? break? Let's do that. All right, guys, go ahead, grab a drink, get yourself some pop of the corn, and maybe a fizzy drink instead of a coffee. It's a little late for that, but if you got some hot chocolate, I say go for that. It's a cold night. Or some Baileys. We're at. <laughs> some Baileys and coffee, indeed. That's how we warmed up our night this evening. There's your commercial Baileys for free. Yeah, right. You owe us in the future at some yeah, point not, in time. Not, not sponsored. Not sponsored. No, most definitely not. We're actually sponsored by Anchor.fm, though, on our podcast hosting uh, network. Uh, Anchor yes. is awesome. You can record your own podcast. You can also listen to some of the best podcasts in the world, just like Spotify or Apple. Uh, the cool thing about Anchor is that it allows you to also call in two episodes to a podcast that you enjoy and share your thoughts and questions and then that can be introduced by the host of the podcast in another episode later on so you can hear the interactions of guests and uh, many other things but yeah if you are interested in creating a podcast i definitely highly recommend checking out anchor it's a free app on the apple store and uh, on google's play store so check it out you can record right through your own phone or your home computer and there's a free ad for you, Anchor, since you help fund this podcast. And we love you guys. What you can do to help us out, help us reach more people, is to like and subscribe and share this podcast with friends and family who you think would like some of the content that we're sharing here. We have guided meditations. I do these Wim Hof breathing tutorials. We've got a couple of those. We've got this series of Actual Out Live that we do every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we review... Uh, John Verbeek is Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, 50 Lecture Series. This is a big uh, project that we are undertaking right now that we hope to help, uh, you know, just kind of popularize, help share with the wider world and help raise awareness of it because it's it's amazing work and it's uh, very helpful, very relevant to our times today. So yeah, anyways, we're going to get on to break and we'll see you guys in like five or ten minutes. Be right back. Be back. Be back. Whoa, oh, 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 whoa, oh, oh, oh. 
Jamming, jamming without skill equals junk. Yeah. Don't chunk it up <laughs> yeah. when you're trying to lay down that phone. Yeah, that's that's the me, whoa, you know, whoa, 10, 15 whoa. years ago that you didn't want to hear. It's like, no, it sounds great. No, it's <laughs> junk, bro. It's a process that you'll we get must the, all you, go through. You'll the perfection get of our artistic yeah. endeavors. You'll get better. Yeah. Yes. Work at it. Hard work equals and also higher higher states of consciousness without developing the expertise in there is also junk and is hollow so just you know good advice going through these rituals just you're not just doing this for sensory experience like the way that we go after everything with our having mode Mm -hmm. orientation Mm -hmm. to life where which is useful when you need something to drink and something to eat but this is more to enjoy basking in beingness itself yep and to allow oneself to like disintegrate into the world, to surrender into this flow of existence yeah. itself, just to let go and to be and allow the thoughts and the emotions and everything to come and go as they please and and realize that there is an orientation to life that is very akin to unconditional love that allows us to be in a place that feels safe and secure and home and you know kind of transcends all the bs you know you're you're aware of what's happening around you you have less problems you notice the judgments that come up in the mind and Mm -hmm. you can choose whether or not to follow the different distinctions that the mind comes up with and you can begin to think purposefully then we can become more attentive so it's a capacity that we all, all have access to and we've noticed the sages are such wise beings to us that they're as we are to children as adults so you use the term disintegrate you know like you know to diffuse mm-hmm. it's very much that you you disintegrate and break down and then reintegrate and re there's that reawakening that yeah. sati that rebirth yeah. It's like uh, almost like you know defragging information on your computer. Back in the day when you used to have to defrag, but it would be you know this mass of things all over the place, and then it would disintegrate it, break it, break it down, <laughs> Isn't and that then a reorganize it. And, to watch, that's yeah. why people get addicted to organization and cleaning yeah. and things like that, tidying up. We should make one of those uh, feng shui in that environment. What are those games called? The whatever away from keyboard games where you just keep them like running, or you just look at them, and it's just an infinite defrag screen and you have some powers that can help it out and you're just like yeah you know i'm at like 90 percent defrag on this level man and it's just no skill involved. it's like you know windows 98 defrag screen <laughs> Dude, that'd actually be a cool screensaver actually yeah yeah right that would be funny uh, i was a fan of the pipes one yeah going all over the place yeah you know, oh yeah yeah, yeah man mm. old school so we ended with um, talking about machine learning and how it has mm-hmm. to toggle between not like self and the world, but data compression, which is the line of best fit and uh, introduction of a, you know, chaotic variation, a disruptive, mm-hmm. a disruptive variation. Yeah. Uh, and then that toggling between helps the machine to learn. And we are also the machine in this sense as well 
We're yes. just toggling between self and outside, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and all the ancient wisdom schools and to- meditative yeah. arts and toggling between the the scaling up and scaling down mm-hmm. you know the, the opacity of transparency yeah. as well as the bit the everything and yes. the single component yes. yeah we, we're utilizing yeah. disruptive patterns yeah. to perfect that uh, opacity to transparency shift that our minds can do to refine our attenuation mm-hmm. to reality yeah but now we're trying hey. to figure out how to get machines to do it god help us all and we're doing it <laughs> yeah yeah it's happening. Oh, but it'll help us learn more about ourselves ultimately. You know, if we get violent, crazy AIs, I guess we are a violent, crazy species. But I tend to think we're more good than we're not. And I, I think, think we do need some help understanding our place in the cosmos. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea. I was just thinking about this um, earlier when we were taking our break about what if we develop an AI modeled after like a bodhisattva. Like like modeled after like Ramana Maharshi and you know like Jesus Christ and you know the wisdom of Buddha and uh, Aristotle all woven together and it is fed in all of this data from around the world and it's helping us perfect ourselves and get along better and it's fine tuned for that to be its primary focus and intention it's like it's reasoning for its reason for being and it just fo- is focused on that, but it allows us to also tackle all different kinds of like crisis events and different uh, challenges that we might be facing. And we, it, it would probably definitely make a good predictive tool um, mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could start to see where, like, if it had, <clears throat> if it had connection to like everybody's interaction with the internet itself, which for you know is pretty much all the time now, it could probably predict when people are building up a little bit too much angst from things and it's like you know can actually see the pattern of that Mm -hmm. and not in the way that we do it with like you know crime statistics and other stuff like that but on a deep personal level and just like put out a warning of like you know the outcome being like what is good for one and all without Um, killing any humans please ai how do we solve the microplastics in the oceans how do we live symbiotically within our local environments and how can we yeah. be more self-sustainable as communities so yeah. on and so forth how can we develop integrated uh, networks well and how can we be most interactive with each other as well and not like interactive like on cell phone wise but like optimally interactive between people too mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if we're going to have an ai it's still you know sorry future ai but it's still going to be a tool we're using just as like, you know, humanity and our perception of the universe and our consciousness, I think is a tool God uses to propagate God, Mm. you know? Um, but once we create something bigger than ourselves, we're going to have to look at the world differently because now we created something that is more than us. It's smarter than us. It's faster. It's better in all ways. And that's a, that's a humble, that's a humble check right there being like well you know this what is it that makes us special and makes me feel good about being me if it's not me being smart or faster or better at a thing or this that or the other you know the ai will be the ultimate smart well yeah i mean it's that you're part of the cosmos you're part of you're an earthling you're an extension of earth it's an allocentric realization yeah you know and i won't i don't want to use and you have this unique perspective and these unique gifts to to share yeah that without which there would be a void in the world there'd be a void in the universe that wouldn't have your unique 
gift because yeah. only you can be you. Yeah. You know, we're all, cause we all fract out a little bit differently. Right. We can twist in all kinds of radically different ways. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, let's jump back into it here. Yeah, before I start freaking my, myself out with thinking about AIs and stuff, <laughs> I lose sleep over this stuff. Yeah. Right. All right, here we are. Seems, I think, plausible to say is analogous to what we see going on at the psychological level within people. What about at the brain level? Well, this is where we have to turn to Newberg because he's done most of the work on tracking brains as people are having these kinds of experiences. And what you see is, right, initially you get increased activity in the frontal area and the parietal area. These are the two areas, the frontal parietal connection, that is most associated with your general intelligence, your ability to make sense and get an optimal grip on the world, because that's what your general intelligence is. So the, initially you see these areas get hyperactive, and then you see the opposite. You see them hypoactive. So, huge increase followed by a huge decrease. Now, throughout, you have, throughout all of this, this is the frontal parietal, you have enhanced activity in the thalamus. This is the area of the brain that tries to integrate all kinds of different information together. The greater the shift, the greater the disruptive shift, the more powerful the awakening experience is. It's just like what's going on in insight. You initially bring all this machinery to bear to frame it, and then you have to massively disrupt it and break it. And then the system re-self-organizes, and that is precisely what's going on, I would suggest to you, in these experiences. So, what is happening in the brain, for example, in psychedelic experiences, is you'll often see this kind of shift. What's important, and there's a bunch of people doing work on this, metastability. So what, for example, psilocybin does, according to recent work done by Lordedal, is it increases metastability in the brain. So if you look at the work of Kelso, Tognoli, and others, what metastability is, is a state in the brain that's doing this complexification I talked about. So normally your brain is integrating things or segregating. Integrating, differentiating. But in psilocybin, what you get is a state called metastability, where And this is a state in which the brain is simultaneously integrating and segregating. It is massively complexifying. Please remember, complexification is when a system is both integrating and differentiating. When you went from being a zygote to being a biologically complex organism, your cells were differentiating into different types of cells, liver cells, eye cells, etc., but they were also integrating. You are complex because you're both highly integrated and highly differentiated. Complexification gives you emergent functions. It gives you new abilities. You can do things as a person 
right, a biological human being that you couldn't do as a zygote precisely because you're complex. Look, emergent functions come to the fact because I'm highly differentiated, I can do many different things, but because I'm highly integrated, I don't fall apart as a system by doing these many different things. I get new emergent abilities. The way you grow and self-transcend as a system is by complexifying. Psilocybin, by putting you into metastability, right, helps your brain complexify and come up with emergent abilities. It allows you to see the world, massive integration, in a grain of sand, massive differentiation. So, I think what we can see here is, at least highly plausible, and I'll come back to what I mean by that in just a minute, account at the psychological level, at the machine processing level, and at the brain level of what is going on in these higher states of consciousness and why they are so powerfully optimizing your cognitive functionality. Once again, not to repeat this, but that, of course, has to be placed within the proper sapiential context. You need a tradition and institutions, a committed community of cultivating wisdom. Now what about the prescriptive argument? I've laid a lot of the groundwork for this. Why should we listen to people who have been in this state? Why should this state serve as the justification for a transformation of your life? If someone comes up to you and says, I want to transform you, I want you to transform your life according to XYZ, right? You need that claim justified, not just described and explained, you need it justified. What would make it a good thing to do. Are these states actually good guides for transformation? Well, in order to do that, I need to introduce a notion to you first. We're going to come back to this notion again when we talk about the nature of cognitive science. Although I've been exemplifying a lot of cognitive science to you throughout these previous videos. This is the notion of plausibility. We need to talk about this because plausibility is central to your notion of how real things are. Now, there's two senses of the word plausible. One is a synonym for highly probable. That's not the sense I'm using. I'm using it in the sense that Rescher and others made famous, where this means makes good sense. stands to reason, right? Should be taken seriously. Most of the time, and I'll make this point in detail in a few minutes, you cannot base your actions on certainty, but you have to rely on plausibility. Now there's a lot of work on plausibility, and I'm just going to try to sketch to you what I think, or work I'm doing uh, with Leo Ferraro and Anderson Todd, about trying to integrate work by um, Lombardi and um, Nashman and Sinatra from 2015, Kyle 2006, Milgram 1997, uh, Kitcher, Reschler, uh, I should say. There's just a lot of different work going into this. 
Here's what I think it is to make something plausible. First of all, it involves what Rescher calls trustworthiness. And I think there's an important way in which trustworthiness comes about. You can see this in some of the work that Kyle has done on explanations we prefer. We regard a particular proposal or a construct or some way of trying to model the world as trustworthy if it's been produced by many independent but converging lines of evidence. Let me give you a clear, concrete example. Right. You will regard as more real information that comes through multiple senses as opposed to one sense. If I'm only seeing something, it, there's a good chance that it's an illusion or a delusion caused by the subjectivity of my seeing. But if I can see it and touch it and hear it and smell it, then the chance is that each one of those independent senses are right, producing an illusion is radically diminished. The fact that they all are telling me the same thing, now that doesn't give me certainty, but it gives me trustworthiness. It reduces the probability, and that's what trustworthiness is, right? it reduces the probability that I'm self-deceived. Now that's not the same thing as certainty, because unfortunately, for example, there is a form of schizophrenia in which people not only hear voices, but they see people attached to those voices, and when they reach out to touch the person, they get a tactile illusion. And it's very hard to convince those people that their illusions aren't real, precisely because this is highly trustworthy. This is why science likes numbers. We like numbers because they allow us to converge the senses. Look, you can see three. You can touch three. One, two, three. You can hear three. We like numbers not because we're fascists or something in science. We like numbers because numbers, quantification, help us to increase the trustworthiness of our information gathering. They allow us to reduce the chance that what we're getting, what we're measuring, what we're modeling is being produced by self-deception. Is that enough for plausibility? I don't think so. So we're converging to some processing state here. But we also want something to be the case, because we're not just looking backwards into how we got there, we're also looking forward what we can do with it. What we want right, is we want a model that we can now apply to many new domains that will open up the world for us, that's multi-apt. Right? This is like, again, taking a martial arts stance. I, I don't use this, but I'm taking this stance because I can quickly adapt it to many different situations. It's multi-apt. It's highly functional. So why do I want this? Right? 
when I can use the same model in many different places, this is, I, I, I would argue, what people mean when they say a, a theory or a model is elegant. You can use the same model, right? It can, it's adaptive enough, it's multi-app that you can use it in many different places and apply it. So you have convergence for trustworthiness, but you have elegance for power, for multi-aptness, for multi-apt application. Is that enough? No, right? I, I, I think this state has to be highly fluent to you. Remember we talked about this. This has to be one that you can use readily, powerfully for yourself, that you can internalize. When you have this, when you have fluency, convergence, elegance, right, you need one more thing. You need a balance between the convergence and the elegance. If I have a lot of convergence without much elegance, that's triviality. The thing about trivial statements is not that they're false, they're true, but they're not powerful. They don't transform. Many times we reject things, we don't take them seriously, they don't make good sense to us, precisely because they're trivial. What's the opposite? Very little convergence with a lot of promise of power. This is when things are far-fetched. Conspiracy theories have this feature. If they were true, they would explain so much. If we would just accept that the British royal family were lizard beings from outer space, we could explain so much of their behavior. But the problem is, although that would be a very powerful explanation, we have very little trustworthy evidence that that is in fact the case. So what we want is we want that, our, as Milgram says, our backward commitments and our forward commitment map. We only commit powerfully forward if we've got a lot of trust in the model that we've produced. When all of this is in place, right, I think we find what we're processing not only fluent, we find it highly plausible. When we have very deep convergence and very deep elegance and very efficient fluency, I think we then find the proposal profound. So you're saying, why are you going on about this? Because what I'm trying to show you is what the brain is doing is, a, that is performing a kind of evaluation of its, the plausibility of its processing when it's in a higher state of consciousness. See this model? What did we see? What did we see? We saw lots of things going into the higher state of consciousness. We saw deautomatization, right? We saw decentering. All of these things are strategies for reducing bias. Reducing bias. These are all strategies for reducing bias, right? Deautomatization. Decentering, fluency in processing, 
the state that you're in is a state of flowing optimal grip. It's intrinsically valued. It's optimizing for processing. And what's this affording, this state? Well, you're finding a nexus for a development. You're finding that systematic error. You're getting that complexification of your processing. So you're getting emergent new functions. You're getting the exaptation of machinery, the insight machinery and the self-machinery into new abilities. You see what I'm arguing? Your brain is in a state in which it's getting information that's saying this processing is deeply trustworthy, deeply powerful, deeply fluent, therefore profoundly plausible. Now, plausibility is not certainty, but plausibility is what we have to rely on. What do I mean by that? You can't get certainty for almost all of your processing. You have to rely on plausibility all the time. Well, you say, but I could turn to science. Science will give me certainty. Well, first of all, pay attention to the history of science. When has it ever done that? Almost all of the theories that have been proposed in science have ultimately turned out to be false in some significant or an important way. Science isn't believed in because it gives us certainty or facts. Science is believed in because it gives us self-correcting plausibility. Look, this is how, what, how, how do I decide what hypothesis to test? I don't test any hypothesis I come up with. I wonder if clipping my toenails will reduce famine in the Sahara. Let's test it out. I wonder if I gather enough frogs together, can I influence the Australian election? Let's test it out. Do you know how many hypotheses, and you say to me, that's what? Ridiculous. That's absurd. What you're saying to me is, those hypotheses don't make sense. They don't deserve to be taken seriously. What you're saying to me is, I reject them because they're implausible. Now I go into my experiment. I'm going to run an experiment in science. Well, what do I have to do? I have to control for alternative explanations. What we're always doing in science is inference to the best explanation. This goes to the work of Peter Lipton and others, right? Here's some phenomena. What I do is I, I have some candidate explanations for what's causing the phenomena. And then what I do is I put them into competition with each other. Which one of my hypotheses best explains it? 
And the one that best explains it, right, is chosen as what's real. But this, how do you make, how would you make this certain? The way you would make this deductively certain is you would have to check all possible explanations. How many possible explanations are there? An infinite number. You can't ever make science certain because you're always doing this. This explanation is only as good as the competition it beats. In science, you advance by coming up with plausible alternative explanations that you beat with yours. Science depends on plausibility judgments. It depends on plausibility judgments when we choose our hypothesis. It depends on plausibility judgments when we choose what variables we're going to control for an experiment. It depends on plausibility judgments once we're done and we have the data and we have to interpret it. What is the number of interpretations I can give for any data? Infinite in number. What do I do? I generate the most plausible interpretation. Before the experiment, during the experiment, and after the experiment, I'm relying on plausibility. Plausibility is indispensable. That's why your brain looks for it. So notice what we've got. This higher state of consciousness is an optimization of your processing. It brings about a state of high plausibility. And it's relying on processes that are fundamental. Right? Because optimization has priority. I have to get my optimal grip before I can judge what it is. I have to zero in on the relevant information and have the right formulation of my problem before I can try and answer it. These higher states of consciousness, notice what I'm saying you have. They have indispensability because they run in terms of your plausibility machinery. They are optimal in terms of getting the best possible functioning for you. They are prior because they are fundamental to any and all of your cognitive processing. Getting this optimal grip, toggling between trade-offs, getting the best relationship between generalizing and discriminating. All of these have priority. These are why these states are such good guides. Again, if they're set within a set of sapiential practices, set within a sapiential tradition. Now, what, what I'm saying is these higher states of consciousness are great guides on how to transform yourself, how to cultivate wisdom, how to see through self-deception. But sometimes people come back from these states and they make pronouncements about the nature of the world. Sometimes these are bizarre. People will come back from DMT and tell them that hyperspace elves have told them that they should remain in forever um, inside their head or some bizarre stuff. Here's the thing you should know about. The propositions that people generate from this are largely useless. You can read these reports. People will have these higher states of consciousness, and one group of people will come out and say, I know there's a God. Other people have these experiences, and they come out, and they're, they're filled with joy, and they say, I know there's no God. Diametrically opposite. 
Because this isn't about propositional knowing. This is about participatory transformation. This isn't about getting secret metaphysical knowledge. This is about getting wise practices, wise transformations. Ultimately, what we need to do is to take the wisdom from these higher states of consciousness and get it into rational discourse with an independently established, via our best science, metaphysics, best science and philosophy. When we can put those two together, then we will have properly salvaged what these higher states of consciousness can afford for us. Do not confuse the rationality of wisdom with the rationality of knowledge. So next time what I want to do is, now that we've got a preliminary account of what these higher states of consciousness, what these awakening, what the awakening of the Buddha might have been plausibly like, we can return to what did he propose specifically, thereby finishing off the axial revolution, our discussion, I should say, of the axial revolution in India, and then we will return back to the Mediterranean world and look at what was happening there after Aristotle. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you there, buddy. So yes, when looking at the brain, I found this fascinating, you know, when, when we're looking at the brain going through one of these higher states of consciousness, you'll see the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe light up, which that's your, that's your actively thinking brain completely light up and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, go hyperactive, but then immediately drops back into Hypo-active. your thalamus and goes hy- hypoactive. And that's yeah. like. And then back to hyperactive. And the hypoactive end is how, how you store your information. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. how our brains normally work. Yeah. Yeah. And we notice enhanced activity in the thalamus during yeah. the higher states. And uh, uh, the more intense these shifts, the more powerful yeah, so, the experiences and the more revelatory and insightful it is. Yeah. Uh, so the greater the insights, yeah. massive reframing, self-reorganizations. And uh, we noticed metastability is increased with psilocybin. So these two modes become yeah. interlocked and perfectly integrated. Mm-hmm. And that's why it feels like the brain turns all the way on. At least in that. And, and when this happens, you get emergent function. Well, you get compl- complexification of things and then emergent functions out of these constant. Yeah. Uh, Everything's but, just flowing in this reframing process, yeah. too. It's. And now, why should we listen to those crazy guys that are like, yo, mm. I ate some stuff off some cow poop, man. You wouldn't <laughs> believe. I don't even believe. Maybe I do. Maybe I... Why, why well, it's, it? it's helping refine the brain, yeah. brain's process that it goes through in optimizing yeah. its awareness and its attenu- attenuation yeah. to reality by taking the integrated integration and the differentiation processes, optimization, optimization process of the brain. And it's utilizing them simultaneously so there's this massive yeah. integration that is occurring yeah well and that's what it does and i guess what what we're going to be trying to figure out is 
like what what justifies that experience it's like okay yeah the experience happened but why why listen to somebody what's the justification for listening to somebody it's well plausibility the plausibility because it's allowing for increased complexification which which allows for um new functions new abilities and that that complexification equals growth yeah and the emergence of ability and so we we create plausibility and we've talked about this in in earlier episodes about like how how you verify like information so like creating plausibility Mm -hmm. we yeah, so why does this justify yeah. change in our lives? Yeah. Why is this plausible to us? How yeah. does this connect with our sense of being a vulnerable being that must survive? Or just for just for anything, and really. have like, meaning and feel integrated, yeah. Yeah, yeah so the plausibility-making so, is a convergence of independent lines mm-hmm. of evidence. which mm-hmm. re- So we're reducing our self-deception. Yeah. Uh, so that's the com- converging end. Right. And then we go into something which is quite elegant, which is they can your theory or your idea or your experience like say like the psychedelic experience can it be applied to multiple in multiple domains then the word you use is multi yes higher state yeah is it yeah is it multi-appliable is and allowing for high functioning elegance that Mm -hmm. that multi application potential that you have that gives enhanced power. The yeah, that, that's where the of, power of, of your the, yeah. of reliable information, like what, how much we can have multi-sensory input, see, hear, taste, feel, yeah. smell. Uh, you get that convergence. You get that sense of trustworthiness. Uh, fluency allows it to be internalized, or if something is deeply yeah. internalized, yeah, it allows us to act with that elegance and and so you get this balance between convergence and elegance mm-hmm. and the we, brain's evaluating its state of processing yeah um, and, and if and you optimizing ha- it in the higher states and if you have convergence without elegance it's trivial nobody takes it seriously it lacks its that's power that's right yeah if too, it can't be too much to one or the other side is yeah it must be balanced and held yeah you know it's like tuning not too tight mm-hmm. not too loose it, once again yeah. and then if you have the power the elegant theory without the convergence then you have something that is far-fetched yeah it's a powerful argument but you don't Mm -hmm. have independent lines of evidence that can verify any of it so it's like okay those crystal skulls have you read any information out of them you know it's a compelling but like has other people like have we hooked it up to the machines and you know done the thing and whereas like with the psychedelic experience we have both independent people coming together and being like no that and then mm-hmm. we can look at the brains while this is happening. Yes. And then these insights yes. that people are getting from these experiences are applied to all aspects of their life. So mm-hmm. now you have that harmony between both. Right. And that's why right. you listen to the guy who's like, dude, I went on this journey, man. Like, you know, and this is kind of what I gained from it. That's that's you the justification. You recognize wisdom yeah. in, in his story. Yeah. Because it allows for a de-automization process. Yeah. And I... Which allows us strategies for reducing bias so these decentering practices and fluency in these practices allows us to be in that flowing optimal grip with reality and increase that optimization process in a nexus of development where we're recognizing the the disruptive uh, aspects of, of reality and having that revelation, that insight 
that self-realizing, self-remembering, mm -hmm. and allowing it to flow in such a way that the emergent new abilities yeah. become comprehensible and achievable. Mm -hmm. uh, things become profoundly plausible. So the way he's describing it, I was picturing it like, you know, like an ice skater, knowing that they have trustworthiness in their capacity, fluency in their ability, and so the trustworthiness from knowing it through their senses, through many times mm -hmm. of doing it, the fluency of their ability and their dedication to their skill, their multi-variant uh, perspectival capacity for looking at the various ways the things can go, and so knowing how to fluently land it with power, strength, perfectly optimized, and do so in a way that is profound at the same time, like watching oneself do it. So they're in this high state of flow with life and existence, and this is a, a mode that we can calibrate our orientation mm -hmm. to, and that's what these disruptive strategies help us do. Yeah. And, you know, when it comes... That's why the medicines are particularly helpful, and the higher states mm -hmm. are particularly helpful for induce and to optimize further. Yeah, it's it's... So we're putting the importance of plausibility much higher than the importance of definitely mm -hmm. because you know science science has always been wrong at some other point in time mm -hmm. and with science what we're what we're not doing is saying what is yeah what we're doing is we are we're participating in a mechanism that is self-correct is a self-correcting plausibility mm -hmm. generator and then finding what's most most plausible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through you know like like what he was saying you know like you know like to yeah. toenails and world hunger and stuff like that it's like well that's uh, it's absolutely ridiculous we already know because well we've been doing the science long enough to know that like there's a pretty there's like almost no chance that your toenail clippings have anything to do with world hunger or whatever right. well that's because we so, yeah we test out the hypotheses we have them compete against each so, other and, and a hypothesis yeah. is only as valuable yeah. as the ones that it's beaten yeah. and so, so we we work on levels of plausibility rather than certainty mm -hmm. in science and that's a great psychological approach to life yeah. as well and, and think of it as think of science as basically just inferring to the best explanation yeah that we have yeah. right now with what we got right right you know that's all science possible does. that, that yeah. we have at this point in time yeah but that possibility is essential it's a, it's that optimization process of finding plausibility in our experience in reality and existence around us is fundamental to our sense of reality mm -hmm. and our sense of connection and meaningfulness and and potential in that reality potential for interaction mm -hmm. so and the higher states are then he argues indispensable mm -hmm. as they're op optimal for priming that functioning and getting the optimal grip on reality and this is all higher states, how, however one is having them. We're mm -hmm. not arguing for psychedelic states yeah. first. All of them are, in, are in fact, complementary. He also showed us yeah. in the last episode in the study that he brought up that showed that people that meditated, that, you know, the psychedelics plus meditation is, of course, an even more uh, mm. revelatory and insightful self-growing yeah. experience but one thing he did say in there that really stuck out is some slash most um 
um, higher stage of consciousness experiences are largely useless. Like one person coming out. Well, then like, no. So people's explanations of what they are, yeah, is, yeah. Are, are useless. Yeah, because, yeah. Well, the the like you know, like say like you know, I know there's a god. Well, I know there's not a god. Well, that's that's functionally <laughs> useless <laughs> for our purposes of understanding in the world, like because it cannot. It's not being verified from multiple yeah, sources. Yeah, yeah. the it, propositions it that me, that we make yeah. as a result of our experiences, the conclusions we come to are mm-hmm. are not. But we're not reliable. But we these, use the and these pl- practices are about cre- creating but we use, more wisdom we within use, our sense making. We use our, our machinery that we use to generate plausibility to tell which of these experiences mm-hmm. are, you know, not definitely the most important, but most plausibly being important and being real yes. and being integral. So it's like you know, I'm not, not knocking anybody that went and saw like, you know, like space elves and stuff like that, or not knocking any of that, but how useful is that experience when it comes to making meaning? Yeah. How many life? different perspectives yeah. can you see that experience from and be okay with it being yeah. viewable from multi perspectives and, that's what, and, and not having to subscribe to any of them, yeah. leaving them all up there as potential. And you might have, you know, levels mm-hmm. of plausibility attached to some things like this thing felt so much like a guy in spirit that i really mm-hmm. felt like earth was talking to me well in a way maybe it was because you are an earthling well, and that's an extension of earth that is self-aware and dreaming and having this interactive vision that's where the importance of rebuilding wisdom practices and wisdom traditions again comes in because then you can have these experiences and then gain more understanding of you know not necessarily why why did the Gaia spirit come to you, but what were what what were you trying to grasp? What are you trying to understand? What is you know what is that mechanic? You know what is that? I hate to say it, it's like what is that vision for? But really, what is that vision for? Why are you seeing say like a Gaia spirit? Are you and particularly what is it telling care- you? Yeah. and what is it telling you? Well, it always seems to be no. attached to what he listed as what higher stage do for us. It's they're helping you recognize bullshit. Yeah. They're helping you recognize wisdom mm-hmm. and deep interconnectedness, deep lessons under and understandings that can only come through an experiential like rocking of that interconnectedness mm-hmm. that is beyond language. I mean, you, you can write books trying to describe a moments of epiphanies that happen in these states. And so that, that they afford such transformation mm-hmm. and growth our yeah. character and, and we, our and capacity to, to interact symbiotically with one another in the environment around us and we have so priceless so many different methods and ways to have higher states and to experience higher states so like why not it's not like the only way to do it is to eat this one thing or to like go sit under a waterfall for 50 years or no it's like well you can do that and you can do that but you can also do this and you can also do this and do this and do this because you know like Humans, we're all really unique and have our own unique temperaments, but we all we we, we tend to have you know archetypical portions of the you know, or or have temperaments grouped into archetypical. Like some people are more, you know, head forward, right on with their experiences, and then you know, like maybe the people who you know do this, like you know, the gazing into the sun for long periods of time while sweating and going through this horrible <laughs> thing, you know. But some other people are the sit on a log. Until you become the log. Don't be sun gazing, and, kids. Yeah, well, unless you're doing like the you know the sun the sun dance. Just like 
um, sunrise and sunset a little bit, but don't be staring. Oh no, you don't like sun, look directly please. at the sun, but you know, um, like the sun dance where you Glance. get suspended from your chest. Well, not completely suspended, but walking the pole and oh man, that's, in the sun and you know, yeah, um, sound like a hardcore the, ritual. That's a Lakota tradition, if I'm not wrong, but it's um, that gets you into a very deep, deep, deep higher consciousness state. Like, but that's one method of doing they did it. Did that with hooks hanging. From yeah. their flesh too, like no, they were hanging. It's actually like these little bone things, and they. Um, there you go. A friend okay. of mine has done it many times, and he also has the hooks in the back, which symbolize another thing. But they've got the chest, you know, the chest scars, and it's like I'm not the brutal temperament kind for that. I find my transcended experience in music and mushies and sitting on the log becoming the log and yeah. noticing the frog on the log that i also am and now i am the frog yeah. i used to do that a lot when i was a kid because i didn't have friends and i lived on a beautiful piece of property so it was like do a lot of sitting and just watching everything until you're not yeah. even yourself they're, they're you're all just aware of it to all the, to the same yeah. place the same mountaintop so to speak you know it's doesn't matter if it's a couple guys in a temple playing a sitar and a djembe oh. Or if it's the Lakota Sundance, yeah. or it's you know some Aztec Indians tripping on mushrooms, or some Northern Siberians tripping on other mushrooms, yeah, right. <laughs> or it's a uh, or a com- know, combination of deep self-inquiry and meditative practices, and or even you know like the people fasting, who, who go on huge dancing to exhaustion, huge long hikes and stuff like you know the Appalachian Trail people and stuff like that. That's like a slow burn way to do it and. Mm. Every time you get to the top of a peak and you can really see out and you can see where you've been and see where you're going and you get that That's overview an, effect yeah, again and yeah. and then back down into the trudging of it too. You know, there's there's very close almost infinite earth. ways to get into higher a uh, higher much time for self reflection as well. So there's this yeah. outer and this inner rejoicing that can have. I guess beautiful. figure out which one's most plausible for you to be able to find useful. Mm. Um, so whether you're the psychonaut end of things or the self-physical punishment work through activity to get to this state kind of person or the introspective meditation reflection kind of person or any of the varieties and combinations thereof yeah you know because yeah let's let's work on finding the great guides and teachers Mm -hmm. and incorporating these practices uh, studiously in 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 a way that we can develop our collective sense-making capacity further our wisdom collective wisdom capacity mm-hmm. further and uh yeah just refine these these techniques of disrupting and reframing and optimizing our node networks of consciousness mm-hmm. to tackle the greatest potential crises our species faces we are here yeah um, no matter where you like no matter where you are there you are and we're here yes Yes. Oh yeah, we we are here on the edge of the awakening. The meaning crisis is uh, is happening. It's but traumatic, but it's exciting. It. <laughs> we have identified what is happening to the human yes. species, and yeah. yeah, we're going to uh, continue on this series every Wednesday night, guys. So definitely join us, eight p.m. EST. It's going to be on to episode thirteen, Buddhism and parasitic processing yeah i've been i've been next episode been wanting to get to this one this is a good one all right guys yeah thank you guys so much for tuning in make sure to like and subscribe share the show with your friends and family who you think might like it but the best thing you can do is most definitely like subscribe and you can also find us on spotify apple all the podcast places 
this live stream episode will be here for your enjoyment on YouTube, but it will also be on the podcast side in just a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So you can listen there as well. And we also encourage you guys, check out John Verveke's work. He's got so many amazing ongoing discussions and projects going on. And, of course, check out Awakening from the Meaning Crisis yourself. Yeah, and, you know, don't be afraid to have watch parties with your friends where you, you know, instead of going out to the club and listening to music, you go to the house, drink some beers, and listen to a lecture, and then talk about it and really get into it and, you know, do what we used to do, you know. Right. Just get together. Something you can do is... You get, you know, older and hopefully wiser. Yeah. Well, you know, we're going to take this thing on together, guys. Yeah. You know, you, you could probably even bring your teenage kids into the room for this one. Oh, sure. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, even your little kids, too. You know, they pick up on a lot more. Yeah, than you can always think. skip our part if we're cursing too much for you guys. But yeah. please, you know, yeah, expose. We've been pretty good with that cur- cursing to, too uh, John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Yeah. But we're doing it. Yeah, we've been pretty good about cursing. You should cursing. do it, too. Uh, it's it's worth it's worth doing There's and watching through whether you watch us or you watch the original source material or both um you know this yeah is like, we appreciate you guys going on this journey with us though and, and we hope you enjoy the commentary and and please do share your thoughts and questions with us as well and we'll uh reply back in the uh in the chat yep 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 indeed well we love you guys we will talk to you soon meow